You know, here we are. How are we doing? Life. Can the center hold till Thanksgiving break, right? Can we can we make it? Thank overall. Some of you are veterans of this experience, really, right? Um anyway, I'm guessing I'll just take that as a maybe. Is that fair? Like gosh, man. All right. For audience participation, low at RUF, low. I thought with a new banner things would change. Like, you know, we would just come in here. Not, yeah, not to mention the mood lighting, uh, which is amazing. Um, anyway, I'm Sid Druin. I have a spiritual gift of awkwardness. And uh, I am from Reformed University Fellowship. I'm the campus minister, and that's what we're up to here. It's a Christian campus ministry at Davidson College that exists to serve the campus and you all, whoever and wherever you are. Um, what that means is RF isn't for like one kind of person, it's for every kind of person. We won't hope that like whatever scene you're from uh, on campus, whatever personal background you come from, um, that you feel welcomed. Um, and we even mean that spiritually. Um, we mean that wherever you are, Jesus or Christianity, whether you're convinced or unconvinced, whether you call yourself a believer or a spiritual skeptic, or you feel uncomfortable with those categories and say none of the above or somewhere between, we're really glad you're here and we just really hope you feel welcomed. Um, and I especially want to welcome you if you're new to RUF. Um, it means a lot, especially this week of all weeks, uh, coming to RUF and um, well, coming together with us and trying to hear uh, from the Bible. So anyway, speaking of that, we this semester have been looking at the life of Simon Peter and in a series I've been titling uh, Stumbling into a Run. The life of Simon Peter, I'm going to say this a couple different ways, serves as a mirror in which we see ourselves indirectly. And it's interesting, like, we need mirrors, right? We need mirrors like Peter's story to see the parts of us that are hidden from normal view, like the spiritual chins, if you will, right? You can't see your chin, don't try it or not once, unless you have a mirror, <laughs> okay? And also, at the same time, uh, Peter serves as a window through which to see Jesus and what Jesus calls his body, the church. And so that's what we're looking at a bit, and we begin this endeavor long, long ago, at the beginning of the semester, by discussing several life-changing personal interactions between Jesus and Peter in the gospel of uh, the books of Matthew and John, primarily, and a little bit in Luke. And a few weeks ago, we kind of pivoted towards Peter's life in the church, looking at the way that Peter confronted, crossed, then retreated behind the barricades of social, cultural, and racial um, barriers. And so tonight we get to look at God's forgiveness and power and the way that these can work through people like Peter and us in difficult and intense moments. Moments like the first church-wide fight. Sadly, not the last, but the first. And perhaps even moments like November 2016 at Davidson College which feels a little bit tense and a little bit difficult sometimes. Um, but before I pray and begin, I'd like to intensify the intensity and difficulty by repeating some of what I've said for the last few weeks. Again, remember, like we're kind of in like the third part of a three-part mini-series. Um, don't we all have a mini-series within a series? Um, we're looking at particularly um, the life of Peter as it applies to 
really difficult issues, difficult topics, and we've got to fight our fears, the discomfort, and the difficulty to even talk about and listen to things like race, church, theology, identity, and of course, Jesus. Uh, That's tough in this cultural moment. And we're called this difficult work primarily because this is the story of the early church. The early church is wrestling with these things in the book of Acts in particular. Um, They're wrestling with them head on. But also because in our common humanity, we actually struggle to read, listen to, and hear out other voices that disagree with us or question our underlying assumptions. That's just part of being human. And finally, I'm going to quote again Duke Kwan, former pastor of mine, who says about topics like race, if reconciliation and honest conversation is going to happen anywhere, it really ought to be happening in the church. And unfortunately, it's sometimes all too often is the last place where such conversations and such reconciliation happens. And so that's kind of what we're up to. That's why we're talking about this. Um, And so with some of this in mind, perhaps because of this in mind, let's pray. And would you pray uh, for us and with me? Father, thank you so much for the opportunity to talk about things um, that are difficult, but also are really relieving. And I pray that the students, as they bring all the stress of this week and the last couple weeks to bear, um, that they wouldn't try to shelve it in this moment and try to pretty themselves up, that I wouldn't try to get myself together, even in this moment of prayer, um, that you would help us to come as we are and to feel um, the freedom, the relief, the tender care of Jesus. And I pray that this sermon would be um, a warm bath. It would be a time to stop, a time to reflect, a time to gaze upward and to see Jesus, to see Jesus high and lifted up, to see you, Jesus, more believable and more beautiful to the eyes of our hearts. And Spirit, would you fill us to that end? Would you help us to see Jesus? That's what we long for. No matter where we are, no matter uh, where we're at with Christianity, I pray that you'd lead us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Okay, so maybe I'm the only one who does this, but um, does anyone else like find themselves singing random songs under their breath? I think probably most people, right? Now, like, maybe it's because you heard it recently or because it's like really kind of like annoyingly catchy, right? Painfully catchy, you know, those songs that you just can't stop singing. But sometimes I find myself singing things under my breath that give words to my state of being. Okay, they articulate how I'm doing. And this is really embarrassing for me to admit on multiple levels tonight, um, but I have caught myself unconsciously singing the song 21 Pilots Stressed Out. Okay? <laughs> Does anyone know the song? We could analyze what this means by looking at lyrics like, I was told when I got older, all my fears would shrink, but now I'm insecure and I care what people think. Or that catchy chorus, right? Wish we could turn back time to the good old days when our mama sang us to sleep, but now we're stressed out. Wish we could turn back time to the good old days when our mama sang it asleep, but now we're stressed out, right? It's somewhere between humbling and humiliating uh, to confess that I am processing my life with those lyrics. The title alone is pretty painful. I'm stressed out. That's just where I am right now. Uh, Like many of you, the election, the presidential elections fall out on campus and also in the nation. The time of year at Davidson coinciding perfectly with that, like research papers, reviews, final exams, 
These have all added up to make me feel stressed out. To be insecure and care what people think and to wish for the good old days when mama sang me to sleep. Okay? Also, my attempt to practice what I preach up here, to listen to voices that I really disagree with or wouldn't naturally listen to uh, about race and church and identity, has really wounded my deep desire to be seen as a decent person. Like, I, my, my deep desire to be seen as a decent person has been completely upended. And so that's kind of where I am. And while I don't agree theologically with many of the things that she writes and says, I think Nadia Bowles-Weber has actually been really helpful for me, um, a helpful voice in this internal and external stress. Like this no small dis dissension and debate inside of me and outside of me. Um, in a chapter entitled, I, I like this title quite a bit, my lowest for his highest. Uh, anyone Oswald Chamber fans? Okay, anyway, <laughs> great title. Nadia describes her moral outrage at George Zimmerman's acquittal for the murder of Trayvon Martin. And she describes how this racism outrage at what's out there feels so good. She describes it like it's like eating candy corn. There's like this self-righteous sugar high that she gets, okay? But then, in the midst of like warring social media demands on her and other pastors to talk um, about this issue in a certain way, in different ways, she begins to look inside and hear, and she sees her own crippling inconsistencies. The way, for instance, that she reacts to a group of young black men walking in her neighborhood at night. And like me and like us, Nadia desperately wants to be a prophetic voice for change. Don't we all? We all just want to stand up and, and shout out, things are not right, these are not the way it should be, and here's a plan. But Nadia is confronted with, in her own words, all the ways I silently perpetuate the things I criticize. And this self-reflection forces Nadia to realize something. She, needs to, she realizes that she is desperate to speak sin, that she needs to, that she gets to confess her inconsistencies and have Jesus take them from her. At the end of the day, Nadia puts it beautifully. We are all sick and hungry for a taste of mercy. And we are all unqualified to be an example of anything other than needing Jesus. Like Nadia's postures and words in the midst of no small dissension and debate is merely a picture, a picture of Peter's posture and his words in this chapter, chapter 15 of Acts. Do you see this parallel? He is coming off the heels, Peter's coming off the heels of a very credible failure. <laughs> the apostle call has called him out publicly and because he relapsed into acting like Christianity was only for ethnic Jews. Remember in Galatians chapter two last week? And he's still feeling the heat of this rebuke and Peter delivers this decisive momentum shifting speech to the Council of Jerusalem, all of the elders and all the apostles gathered together in Jerusalem to make a decision. And the climax of that speech, of all things, is a confession. That's his takeaway, verses 10 and 11. It's a confession. In so many words, Peter desperately speaks about his inability those people's inability, our inability to take care of all the good shoulds in our lives. We just can't do it. And how Jesus takes that guilt and he takes that shame away from us. 
in a sentence, God first changes the world. This is how God changes the world. He first changes the world, changes people like Peter. He changes institutions like the church. He changes cultural norms like race. He changes those with our confession and Jesus' acceptance. So God first changes the world with our confession and Jesus' acceptance. Okay? And the book of, of Acts chapter 15, verses 1 through 12, basically just shows us the powerful way that our personal confession and Jesus' indiscriminate acceptance begins to change things for the better in three ways. So we're going to look at those in stages. Okay, first, this is on your handout as usual, okay, we see the heated and hurtful issue. So you're going to get some alliteration, not in alphabetical order. So, I know, disappointing. So the heated and hurtful issue, verses 1 through 5, okay, the messy and methodical approach to to resolution, okay, verses 2 through 7. And third and finally, verses 7 through 12, the decisive and delightful turning point. Okay. So we're going to look at the issue, how, the, how we move to, uh, to resolution, and the turning point. And you can find those in your handout, but also we're going to begin at the beginning, right? Isn't that what we usually do? Verses 1 through 5, and we're going to look at the heated and hurtful issue. What's the issue of contention okay, in this whole thing? Verses 1 and 5, both book and the, book and the section, but they also summarize the issue. There is a loud and increasingly outraged faction of the early church they are called men from Judea in verse 1, or believers in Jesus who belong to the party of Pharisees. Yes, some Pharisees actually believed in Jesus and became a huge core member, a part of the church. Okay, so first we see this outrage manifest in the predominantly Greek city of Antioch, Syria. I told you that Antioch, Syria is about a half a million people. That's what they think. And only 10% of that population is Jewish. So it's majority non-Jewish. Okay, and then... You see that the, the outrage again predominantly manifest again in verse 5 in the predominantly Jewish city of Jerusalem, right? And the Pharisee party from Judea has basically in both of those places drawn a theological, a racial, and an ethical line in the sand. And it says, none shall pass, except maybe if you're like me, like us, of course, right? That's kind of how it works. And they clarify this line in their two statements in verses 1 and 5. Unless you are circumcised according to the custom of Moses, you cannot be saved. Unless you are circumcised, you cannot be saved. Okay? Pretty clear. Verse 5. Back in their home territory, they add some demands. They say it all the way as they want it to be. Okay? It is necessary to circumcise them, the Gentiles, and order them to keep the law of Moses. So it's necessary for circumcision to happen and for the law of Moses. And this is what that means. Anyone who believes in Jesus cannot really be accepted. They can't really be pleasing to God and right with the world and right relationships with other people, right relationship with themselves. They can't have any of those things unless they first become Jewish. And they must be circumcised and do God's law to prove their Jewishness. You see, from the very beginning with Moses, the Jewish people were separated from every other people by two things, a physical feature, circumcision, and a set of rituals and practices called God's law. 
Okay? And this theological, racial, and ethical divide, the separation, okay, put the Israelites, later called the Jews. You want a fun fact? They're called the Jews because when they come back from exile, it's just the tribe of Judah. Okay, so mostly tribe of Judah, so it's Judea, then it becomes Jews. Okay? Anyway, so that's why they move from Israel to Jews. And so that's one side of the faction. Okay, there's a separation between the Israelites and now Jews on one side called God's people and every other single person group on the other side. <laughs> this is what the word Gentile means. Literally, it means nations, as in like every other nation but Israel. But like before you sort of throw ancient Israel behind, under the bus, you got to realize that every nation does this. Do you know the Chinese character for China or the the Chinese character for like the word China literally means middle kingdom. Like they're the center of the world. Okay? And also the th- you know what the word barbarian comes from? It's the, it's Latin and it means anyone who's not Roman. Okay? Or do you know what the word xenos means in Greek? Okay? It means foreign or foreigner or stranger. That's why we get the word xenophobic. You're scared of foreigners or strangers. Non-Greeks, basically, to the Greek people. Everyone does this. Does that make it right? No. But a lot of people do that. Anyway, that words with friends aside. Okay, isn't that fun? Like little words with friends. Yes, I won. Facebook loves me. Um, look, the, the heated and hurtful issue is not can non-Jewish Christians exist. Okay? Everyone agrees that non-Jews can become Christians. The issue is how, okay? Can, do you have to become Jewish first to become Christian, to be in Jesus? Does that make sense? Is everyone tracking with this? Okay. More simply, is faith in Jesus enough or is it faith in Jesus plus Jewishness? Okay, is everyone, we're on the same page. Okay, this is the nature of the debate. Okay, verse two tells us there's two distinct sides that draw up in Antioch. You got Paul on one side, saying Jesus is enough for God's, uh, faith in Jesus is enough for God's love. And you've got the party from the Pharisees in Judea on the other side saying, hey, faith in Jesus is not enough for God's love. And perhaps due to no small dissension and debate, I keep saying that because I think it's like the best understatement of the century. No small dissension or debates. The word dissension comes from the word for like mutiny or rebellion or insurrection. It's like a giant throwdown. Um, there's a sizable group, by the way, that goes back and forth between Paul on the one hand and the Pharisees on the other. And do you know who that group is led by? Peter. Peter can't make his mind up. He keeps going back and forth, back and forth. The ultimate waffler. Okay? Pastor Greg Thompson sums this up beautifully and begins to apply the scene well, because that's what you're waiting for. <laughs> the church was for Peter and is for us in a full-scale identity crisis. I think this still holds. The church was and now continues to be in a full-scale identity crisis. Listen to the way that Greg Thompson puts it. Jesus' work, his life, his death, his resurrection, changes the way you think about identity. And if we're going to live together, we're going to have to think of identity differently. It's not just the history you have or the practices you have. It's what Jesus has done. That tells you who we are. That tells us how we get to be this and who has the right to change us and what makes us happy. That, let me just put this really, really frankly. And this is where I start to get everyone mad. 
individual success and failures, my best and worst attributes, my biggest fans and my harshest critics don't get to ultimately define me. They don't get the privilege. Only Jesus does. Or, here we go, the demographic tags we stick on ourselves and we stick on other people, white, black, Asian American or Hispanic, college educated or uneducated, white or female or other, rural or urban, these tags or labels, as important as they can be and are, are not primarily, they're not primary in Christianity. Look, I don't want to pretend that this world or even I am colorblind, okay? I don't want to pretend that the world or I are achievement blind even, okay? But I want to give Jesus the ultimate and primary word about who we are and who I am. Because his word beats every other word, hands down. Look what Jesus, listen to Jesus' words. They're what we need to hear most, especially in the stress. Jesus is saying, well done, good and faithful servant. Enter into my joy. Jesus is saying, this is, you are my beloved son. This is, you are my beloved daughter. And I'm well pleased with you. But there's going to be more on Jesus' words in a minute. It's ultimate words is the primary mode. So hold tight and we'll keep getting there. Okay? Here's my point. The point is that identity is what it's issue. It's the issue at hand in chapter 15 of Acts. And it's also at this cultural moment, like any other cultural moment, the, the issue at hand. Why? Because identity is always at stake. It's completely and absolutely fundamental. And all of this talk of theology leads me to my second point the messy, methodical, and I would argue theological approach to resolution. We see this in verses 2 through 7. I'm going to make this point mercifully short. Everyone just thinks I make huge, long points at the beginning, make a very small point at the end. That might be true. But this sermon is going to be completely reversed, and we're going to make a very small middle piece, okay? So lots of bread, very little meat. Okay, so what I'm going to do here is make this mercifully short. I just want you to notice basically one thing. Paul and Barnabas, the apostles and the elders... The Pharisee party, every single party, all of them, move from the intense and perhaps divisive dissensions and debates in Antioch, and they take the party down to Jerusalem in order to debate, in order to promote unity and peace in the church. And I'm going to say that I think this is actually really remarkable if you start to unpack what, ex- I mean, what exactly is going on here. Okay? First, I want to show you that there's three things at work. Okay, So first, while there is a clearly stand-on-your-feet moment of emotion, pathos in verse 5, right? The Pharisees stand up and shout their command, their line in the sand. Okay? In verses 3 and 4, okay, there's also... Um, sorry, in verse 5... There we go. In verses 3 and 4, here we go. So short, I'm missing it. Verses 3 and 4, okay... <laughs> We've, got, we've also got ethos, okay? So when Paul and Barnabas are sharing their story about who they are and what they've done, they're sharing ethos, okay? And they're doing that in verses 3 and 4. And then we also, at the same time, have this, this perfect three that Aristotle loves in rhetoric. We also have logos, or reason, and that's signified by consideration debate in verses 6 and 7. 
Okay, so it's neat to think that not just one rules the day. Okay, that personal story, emotion, and logic all are important. Okay? Second, along the Logos reason lines, this gathering is not just practical, it's also doctrinal. Okay? It had to do not just with like what works sociologically, it also has to do with what is true theologically. Okay? In the words of John Calvin, look, he's admittedly a theologian, okay? But he's world famous. Can we, can we give him a break? He says it this way Doctrine, doctrine is the sacred bond of unity between believers. Doctrine is the sacred bond of unity between believers. That's not what we think, right? We rarely think that doctrine or truth is something that unites, right? Maybe you grew up with this banner in your church or in your household. Doctrine divides, okay? Uh, I want to propose a new mantra, a new banner, a bumper sticker, okay? It goes like this, doctrine, dot, 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 it happens. (laughs) Doctrine, dot, 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 it happens. Why? It is impossible not to do theology. It's impossible not to have doctrines. If you think at all, you can only have doctrine. Like, so what are we doing fooling ourselves? What are we doing claiming a neutrality that even Switzerland didn't have in World War II? And let's stop talking about how we don't have doctrine. Okay? And let's start thinking about the fact that if, if it's impossible not to do theology, we might have to use theology to make a long-lasting unity. It might be by the very strands of doctrine that we knit together a long-lasting and permanent unity in Christ's church. At least that was the, the idea in Acts 15. Okay. Third, finally, I'm almost done. Finally, if doctrine and theology matter in Acts 15, the church also clearly matters. The institutional church. Again, totally remarkable. Many people might assume the institutional church would be the last place to have this It's the last place to settle what's heated or hurtful or perhaps even remotely important. But Eugene Peterson points out, what other church is there besides the institutional church? Look, it's just not a bunch of people sitting in a Starbucks. That's just not church. Okay? There is an institutional church. And furthermore, while the institutional part of the church may feel dead, it's like the bark of a tree. It protects the life of the tree or the people within it. Without bark, the tree is prone to disease and dehydration and death. And without the institution of the church, people are prone to spiritual disease and heresy and narcissism. So I'm going to summarize this with like three, my three points with a few sassy and pointed applications, if I haven't been sassy already. Okay? An emotional, this is the first point, an emotional argument is often not enough to change people's minds. An emotional argument is often not enough to change people's minds. Second, you are a theologian whether you like it or not. Third, the very human behind the scenes part of the church might actually be what's keeping you spiritually healthy. Believe it or not. Okay, now that we're all in disbelief, let's keep moving. That's the end of point two. Point three, okay. But the thing is, we have to to enter into changing minds, to enter into theology, institutional church, and to reconstruct our identities, back to point point one, we need to hear what Peter has to say to us in verses 7 through 12. Okay, this is point three, the turning point. Okay, we're looking at the turning point of the Council of Jerusalem. 
Okay, verse 7 tells us the summary statement. After there had been much debate, Peter stood up and he said to them, and then after verses 7 through 11, we get verse 12's point. What is what? And all the assembly fell silent. What happened between verses 7 and 11? What happens between everyone arguing and standing up and getting all worked up, and then everyone just like this deep, respectful, thick silence after Peter speaks? Look, what Peter said changed the course of the council, changed the course of the entire church, and arguably the course of a lot in this world. And it's so amazing, like a mic drop moment, Peter, that's the last words of Peter in the book of Acts. He's out. Amazing. So this is like purposely a big deal. Okay, it is decisive. But what did Peter say and why did it matter so much to be all of those things? Here's, it's really interesting. Peter did two things. He told his story in verses 7 through 9, and he confessed his need for Jesus in verses 10 through 11. Okay? Like, think about how much the Council of Jerusalem, how much we need to hear Peter's story again and again. I just can't get over it. That's part of why we're doing this series. Uh, that's part of why um, I just get so fired up about his story. And the sliver we get to hear from Peter is he retells the story of how um, Jesus came to him and brought him to Cornelius and his household in Acts chapter 10, and how they clearly received the Holy Spirit on the spot, and how they became Christians or believers. And look, it was probably very convincing the way he told the story in verses 7 through 9, how God clearly made it evident that these Roman Gentiles believed and how they gave the, they got the Holy Spirit and how they inwardly were purified in their hearts. I think that the real sticking point for this is that the audience, the Jerusalem audience and us, are equally moved by Peter's backstory. He's just got to have that gravitas from his backstory. And I want to like imagine what brought Peter to that point. Imagine what Peter must have gone through mentally and internally on the way down from Jerusalem to Jerusalem from Antioch. And like, and then during all the back and forth debating in the council, like what was he doing? Perhaps he was tracing the ups and downs of his well-worn memories <laughs> of Jesus, pausing to stare at the threefold betrayal in the high priest's garden pressing hard to dog ear the page of his threefold restoration at the seashore. And it seems likely he was rehearsing the story to Cornelius, right? Because that's what he speaks about. Again, the denial. Again, the voice of Jesus and the vision, this vision of all the foods and all people being clean. And then Jesus, and then the three times it's needed because Peter denies it twice. And then the renewal. Peter is still sent, blooming into the privilege of welcoming Cornelius and his household into God's family. And in fact, in verse 9, Peter self-consciously paraphrases the beginning of his sermon in Acts chapter 10. Okay? He says, God shows no partiality. No distinction between us and them. But you know, in the middle of that victorious moment inside of his heart and mind, I imagine the, cre- the shame crept in. It stained Peter's pride. His multiracial, multicultural sensibility tainted by the stinging memory of Antioch, right? What happened there? Avoiding Greek eye contact. Silently moving tables to sit with only Jews. The humiliation of Paul's very public protest 
of what Peter was up to. And so I want you to imagine the faith it would have taken for Peter, the waffler, the flip-flop artist, to get up and to speak at this council. To get up and to look both Paul and the Pharisee party in the eyes. I want you to imagine the catch in his voice, the tremble of his lower lip, as Peter once again told the story of his past tense personal success. But please don't miss the faith that Peter had in Jesus' forgiveness. Because he didn't just speak verses 10 and 11. He confessed in front of all the people he wanted to impress the most. In verse 10, Peter clearly confesses that he and everyone else, past, present, and future, is unable to bear the yoke of God's law. He is unable to keep the rules He can't check all of the boxes on his moral to-do list. He can't win the weekly Davidson Olympics. He can't outwork the other people in the basement of the library. Peter cannot do the impossible. All the good shoulds he ought to do, including consistently loving people of other races for Jesus' sake. To think otherwise is to commit myself. It's to commit yourself. It's to commit other people to to a life as a beast of burden. It is straight and simple spiritual slavery. Then Peter confesses his, their, our need for God's unconditional acceptance. (laughs) And you know, he does this so stunningly. He does this by paraphrasing the very words that Paul rebuked him with in front of everyone else in Antioch. Do you get that? Verse 11 is a mirror image to Galatians chapter 2, verse 16. But we, the Jews, believe we will be saved through the grace of the Lord Jesus, just as they, the Gentiles, do. This is the delight of the turning point. Peter is pointing away from the default mode of every single human heart in the world, every other system of thought in the world. Peter, like Paul before him, is saying that the message of Christianity, the gospel of verse 7, is not, I obey, therefore I'm accepted. It's the exact opposite. The good news is I get accepted, and therefore I obey. And this is what grace means. Grace means that Jesus obeyed for me in his life. And we get acceptance because he Jesus gave it to me, no strings attached, a gift by his death and his resurrection. That's where the freedom is. You want freedom this time of year? Do you want freedom that's somewhere beyond your efforts, somewhere beyond the realm of high or low self-esteem? It's there. Grace. Grace is not a mulligan. Do you know what I mean? I'm going to get into golf and mini golf for us, okay? the non-golfers, the mini-golfers, okay? Grace is not a mulligan. It's not just a do-over. It's not just an occasional suspension of the rules so that we can go back to making par or better. Grace takes the scorecard, crumples it up, and throws it in the water hazard. Grace, Grace takes the small half pencil with no eraser, and chucks it as hard as God can throw it into the woods out of bounds. In the midst of daily stress, deadly doing, this is my confession and my only hope. 
In the midst of all of my life, I have been in death. In the midst of that abiding death, I have been in nothing. Knee deep in it, waist deep in it, up to my nose and in over my head and not a thing. But Jesus came to raise the dead. Not to improve the improvable, not to perfect the perfectible, not to teach the teachable, but to raise the dead. He never met a corpse. Jesus never met a corpse, no matter what race or gift set, that didn't sit up right then and right there when he talked. He never meets us without bringing us out of nothing into the joy of his resurrection. And he raises us all. And without so much as a buy or leave, just be a good corpse. And he does the rest. Because his word is the ultimate bark. My nothing, your nothing, ain't nothing no more. Or in the words of Nadia Bolzweber, God loves you as you are, forgives all of your sins, frees you from yourself. Membership in Christianity is based on failure. Nobody's worthy. Everybody's welcome. And here's what's so breathtaking about that, is that this kind of confession, this kind of invitation to the God who knows and cleanses hearts, to the God who makes no distinctions, Peter's confession, his invitation, leads to concrete and real change. Aren't we tired about talking? Real change. What happens? The Jerusalem Council changes the entire course, a 180 of what the church is about, and thereby changes the entire world. They speak against the Pharisee party and for Paul. They speak against racism and give guidelines to realistic, actual multiculturalism. They speak against becoming more by doing more, and they speak for Jesus' work and our freedom. They speak for Jesus' work and our freedom to make mistakes and still be able to serve other people well. You're not disqualified yet. I'm not disqualified yet. We can't be. There is a universal dignity that is grounded for every human being in the unchanging, always and forever God. And there is a love that he gives that shines forth from people who know him that privileges self-sacrifice and puts its trust not in the changing of administrations, but in the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords and the Prince of Peace. Would you pray with me? Father, a lot of this is hard. Um, A lot of this is really beautiful. I pray that you'd help us to believe some of it, um, wherever we are with Christianity, that you'd help us to trust. To trust in you, wherever we are. I pray, Father, that um, you, you'd speak to our unbelief. You'd speak to our cynicism. You'd speak to um, the ways in which we think that another church council or an invisible God can't do a lick. I pray that you would speak to the way in which just confessing that starts to change real hearts and real minds. I pray that you would speak to us wherever we are and that 
um, he'd help us to sit up and take notice. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.